Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, I've entitled our message, The Prince of Peace in a World of War, and we're going to do some different things uh, this weekend. Uh, yesterday was Remembrance Day, and uh, last week we actually handed out poppies at the end of the service and asked you if you could remember when you take off your poppy to grab a bag from your pantry and to start loading it up with food for the Veterans Food Bank, and so many of you did that. I think there's about a pickup truck uh, worth of food out there in the lobby right now. I just checked before uh, the last song here. So thank you so much for that. Thank you for uh, your contribution to that. There's a couple ladies that will round that all up and get that to the appropriate place, but thank you for that. We also have a few treats for veterans out in the foyer after the service, Uh, but in the service, this is going to be a little different, and we're going to do a few things that we don't normally do on a Sunday morning. We're going to show a video about Canada's history here in a moment, but we want to honor those who have served, and then I want to help us to think biblically about the subject of war, and Christians don't agree on this, and so we're going to kind of walk through a little bit the Bible on this. There's not a clear passage on the subject. There are many poorly interpreted passages on the subject. But there are some teachings that do influence our views on this. And I think we want to think biblically about everything. And again, this is a subject a lot of Christians don't agree on. And especially in this part of Canada, a lot of us come actually from Uh, evangelical traditions that are somewhat pacifist. So if you're here and you are a pacifist, little pacifist humor, don't shoot the messenger. Did you get that? All right. Keep working on it. All right. All right. Whatever. So we're going to give you an overview on the subject. I want you to think and discern. And what you're kind of going to do here, a little bit differently, I'm kind of going to do the little, this is going to be kind of Christian college classroom ethics class on war. It's a secondary issue, but again, I think our faith influences what we believe across all kinds of things, and the Bible should influence those views. But first, I want you to watch this video together just to honor Remembrance Day, and also it kind of gives us a a sense of uh, Canada uh, through history. Before we get into uh, the Bible, I know that many of us are connected to uh, either past wars or military service through our personal or family history, and We just want to acknowledge that at this time. Do we have, and I know veterans don't necessarily want to be pointed out, but uh, please, please cooperate with us here. If you're a veteran uh, in any country in the military, would you please uh, stand for us? I know we have a few. They will refuse to stand. Maybe we do not. All right. Also... Who here has immediate family? Sons, daughters, just raise your hand. Sons, daughters, parents, brothers, or sisters who have been in military service. Sons, see how it starts affecting more of us? And keep your hands up. Extended family, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, grandparents. You can put them down now. But it just shows how we are, most of us, connected to this subject in some way, through blood in our family. And as I was beginning to prep for this discussion, 
I came across a picture of a sign on this subject. And the sign or the placard read, Who Would Jesus Bomb? And it was very interesting. I mean, it was a really interesting question because it sort of makes you assume that the answer is absolutely nobody. Because you think of Jesus and you think of all of his good nature and many of the things he taught, but the subject is much more complicated than that question. The Bible does not have a very clear passage on this subject, but there are a lot of passages that are misinterpreted, and I want to start with four cautions regarding interpretation on this issue, and eventually I'm going to talk about what is commonly called a just war uh, position. But there are four cautions I want to start with and, and that influence people's views of this subject. One of them is that some people view the Old Testament and New Testament as sort of different as it relates to God's nature. And they look at the Old Testament and they see all these wars and they see a God who seems much more austere and much more willing to punish. And they see Jesus meek and mild and, and they see the Old Testament God is sort of angry and retributive and war is common and Jesus all about love, and they almost assume there's a difference in the nature of God between in the Old and New Testaments. The problem with that is there isn't. God doesn't change, and God isn't internally inconsistent. And the Father and the Son, we believe in a trinity that is three persons that are all equal. There is one God. So there really isn't a difference. What is different is this, and that's the second point, the uniqueness of Israel in history. And if you don't understand this issue, you will not understand your Bible very well. But it is the difference between the Old and the New Testaments. And it's why we misinterpret Scripture so much. Israel is at war a lot in the Old Testament. And God had a unique covenant with her. Now, I have feelings about Israel today. Um, and Israel today is national Israel. It is not spiritual Israel. It's not the Israel of the covenant of the Old Testament. Now, in general, I'm supportive of Israel, and I think in general we should be. They were God's chosen people historically. I believe God has a future for Israel. But the reality is, in the Old Testament, Israel had something unique in history. They had a treaty with God. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy is written in treaty form. We have found ancient Hittite treaties they look just like the book of Deuteronomy, only different words, different God, different people. It's very fascinating. So Deuteronomy is a treaty between God and a nation where God in that treaty promises blessing on Israel for obedience and a withdrawal of blessing for disobedience. But in the blessing for obedience section, it basically is stating that if Israel obeys God, they will prosper in every way, and believe it or not, it includes victory. It includes the ability to be in the promised land and the ability to defend it appropriately. Now, there's no other nation in the world that had that unique promise. God literally protected and aided them in battle. There were battles that took place in the Old Testament. You'd have to say, God showed up. God was on their side. And it was true. Here's the problem with Christians today and the Old Testament. Some Christians believe that if any other nation, whether it's Canada or the U.S. 
or any other nation has a preponderance of Christian values or a majority of Christian values that they too will experience God's blessing and God's protection. And they get it from verses like, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Or this is a really common one. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal their land, and, or I will forgive their sin, I, I will heal their land. And, and Christians in Western nations will take that promise upon themselves and think that promise applies to any nation that will sort of follow God. God will protect them and he will bless them. Here's the problem. There is only one Israel in history And her covenant, her treaty with God, was unique. And no other Western nation, including my home country, is the new Israel and is promised those blessings from God for having some sort of Christian heritage. They will be, all nations that reflect Christian values will benefit in some ways and be blessed, but they're not promised military success like Israel was. They're not guaranteed those things. That's a huge problem with biblical interpretation. We are not Israel. We are not Israel. Third, and this is a bigger one for those of us who maybe grew up in pacifist traditions, the application of personal revenge passages to national security. One of the key rules of hermeneutics, or how to understand the scriptures, is to apply a passage narrowly to what that passage is actually about. We have to take the passage, understand what it meant to the people who read it, and apply it narrowly today to a similar context. Otherwise, meaning is uncontrolled and uncontained. Here's one of the passages that we often misinterpret on this. Matthew 5, verses 38 to 40. Jesus is giving us sort of the true intention of the Old Testament law. He's giving us kingdom values. He talks about in the Old Testament, there was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and there was sort of a revenge theme written into the law. And Jesus says, I tell you, I don't want you to think that way, but when it comes to something that's done wrong to you, he says, do not resist an evil person. In other words, if evil is coming towards you, don't resist it. Don't try to get even. If you're slapped on the right cheek, what does he say? Turn to them the other cheek also. So this seems to be that we allow evil to go unrestrained in the world around us. And that's the point that Jesus is making. But he's also making that point in the context of how believers are supposed to act in the kingdom. It's about being salt and light in the world. He is not defining national policy in that passage. But that is a key passage that is used for pacifist views. Another one is Exodus 20, verse 13. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. That is one of the worst interpretations of that Hebrew word that you can find in the Bible. And most translations have that word. It is a terrible translation. That word should say, and it does in some modern translations, thou shalt not murder where you've got a personal revenge motive. The Hebrew word is ratzak. It's used over 49 times in the Bible. It is never used in the Old Testament of killing that takes place in war. That is a separate issue. The command from God is thou shalt not murder. You should not take personal revenge for wrong into your own hands. But society does do that. 
and there's a lack of clear teaching on war outside of Israel's covenant. That is something we need to admit. We don't have an absolutely clear passage in Scripture on this, so whatever conclusions we come to, we need to hold them with some humility. So what should we believe about war? Four quick points. A theology of war begins with the value of the image of God in mankind. Almost all great causes exist because of this principle. Genesis 9-6 is one of the first laws that you will see in the scriptures. It's one of the first laws governing society. And in Genesis 9-6 it says this, if a man sheds another man's blood, all right, so that's gonna be murder, a man sheds another man's blood, it's personal vindictiveness, by man shall his blood be shed. That's killing, not murder. In other words, if a man sheds another man's blood, by man, or society, shall his blood be shed, and the basis is, for in the image of God he created him. The value of life in humanity is only because of one thing. We are only unique because of God's image. The imprint of the nature of God is in all of us. How we function above the world of animals around us, we're obviously superior to them, but we also have a soul spirit that will live forever. We have a moral nature, we have a conscience. When one of us kills another person, it's murder. Society wasn't supposed to take it seriously and deal with that. And this is the basis of capital punishment in the scriptures actually began early in the book of Genesis. But in a general sense, all kinds of causes revolve around this. Abortion, which the sermon is not about, but it assaults God's image. Euthanasia, which is why we're concerned about things like maid, it assaults God's image. Slavery diminishes God's image by saying that some people are above other people. Discrimination diminishes God's image. It's the reason in every way we are to treat people as God wants us to. It's because it's the image of God in them. The scripture gives us reasons. We're not supposed to say bad things about other people because the image of God resides in them. War is a large-scale assault on God's image by an aggressor country. If people didn't have God's image, it wouldn't matter that much. But we matter like nothing else. We are eternal beings. We reflect God's image and likeness. So when a group of people on the planet is harmed or is in harm's way, we should care. Because in many cases, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of lives are taken and they all bear the image of God. That's why it matters. Second, a theology of war recognizes the human capacity for evil. There was a popular view of eschatology. So eschatology is the study of the end times, or the study of last things. And there are all kinds of views on eschatology. One of those views, until about 150 years ago, so late 1800s, early 1900s, Many, many, many Christians were what is called amillennialists. You know what that word means? Heard of it? Okay, all right. We've got some work to do here. All right, you've heard the word premillennialist? Some of you heard that one? Okay, we're going to have to do the series on eschatology. 
All right. So a premillennialist believes that Jesus is going to come back to earth and then he's going to reign here for a thousand years, like it talks about at the end of the book of Revelation. Sound familiar to some of you now? All right, so a premillennialist believes this world is a mess and Jesus is going to come back and when he comes back, he's going to fix the mess and he's going to reign on earth for a thousand years. Revelation 20, 21, 22, right in that area, all right? An amillennialist believes that Jesus doesn't have to come back to earth personally, but that the kingdom values are going to keep, as Christianity spreads, will continue to sort of explode on this earth until this world kind of looks like heaven on earth even before Jesus comes back. Does anyone have any hope that that is happening? All right? In the late 1800s, people had all kinds of hope. And pastors taught that. Amillennialism. Jesus isn't going to physically come back to earth as a second coming. He doesn't have to come back and fix a broken world. Rather, as Christianity touches the globe, we're going to get better and better. Society will progress. Mankind will progress. God's values will permeate the world until it looks like the kingdom of heaven on earth. And you know what ended amillennialism? World War I. When people realized, we're not that good. And you know what's interesting? Since World War I, or including that, listen to this. The 20th century was the bloodiest in human history. In humanity, a moral history of the 20th century, Jonathan Glover estimates that 86 million people died in wars from 1900 to 1989. 2,500 people every day 100 people every hour for 90 years. In addition to those killed in war, government-sponsored genocide and mass murder killed approximately another 120 million people in the 20th century. Perhaps more than 80 million in the two communist countries of China and the Soviet Union alone, according to R.J. Rummel's statistics of democide. Over 200 million people in the last century, slaughtered through war or genocide. If I mention the city of Nuremberg, most of you will think of what? The Nuremberg Trials, right? Post-World War II, Nuremberg Trials. Nazis were tried as war criminals. There was some, although I don't think it was satisfactory, there was some accountability for unprovoked invasions by Germany and policies of genocide against especially the Jews, but not just the Jews. These trials in Nuremberg took place from 1945, so right after the war this was instituted, until 1949. And they, I believe, were the beginnings of what we would now call an international court, which I think The Hague is also relatively famous for. But if you Google Nuremberg today, do you know what you're more likely to come up with? Not just the Nuremberg trials or courts, but actually Nuremberg rallies. Because that's also where the Nazis held massive open-air rallies. And you can go on Google, not right now, and you can go on Google and you can look up Nuremberg Nazi rallies and you will just see open air tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people all standing in line, you know, Heil Hitler, and believing in the propaganda of exterminating a mass number of people. 
It's where heinous ideas metastasized and spread into young hearts. And in my opinion, as long as evil exists in this world, and there are people who are that power hungry or have those kinds of ideologies, society, the world, nations, must have a lethal means of protecting themselves and other nations from it. That is my view. Third, a theology of war applies to government's role in punishing evil at an international level. Now this is where you get into does the Bible really validate war outside of the nation of Israel? And I want to read a passage for you, and if you have a Bible, you could turn to that. It's Romans chapter 13. And we're not going to really break it down much because it, it really doesn't need a lot of help. It just talks about the real role of government. There's quite a transition between chapter 12 and 13. And I, and I want you to see this because what you're going to see is a passage that almost sounds like we should be pacifists followed by a passage that sounds like we should go to war. And they're right next to each other. And the reason is, I believe, the context changes. So Romans chapter 12 if you have a Bible, it's on page 127 in the Bible in front of you, if you don't have a Bible, 127 in the New Testament. And I'm going to begin with chapter 12, verse 14, because this sounds like we should never go to war. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Don't be haughty, etc., etc. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now based on that passage, I don't think we should ever hit back, and it sounds like we should all never go to war. Now you get to chapter 13. Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities. He's not talking about church here. He's talking about government because he talks about taxes in a few verses. For there is no authority except from God. In other words, God is the author of government. Nations rise and fall because of God, and those who exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves." For rulers are not a cause for fear of fear, for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, government, is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil." If you go to 1 Peter 2.14, it'll say the same thing, basically, that government exists to praise good and punish evil. So how do you have Romans chapter 12 right next to Romans chapter 13? In Romans chapter 12, you have all these passive sort of ethics. And what's going on is there, what we're talking about is people's lives in the church and in community and how we act with each other. In Romans 13... We've moved from how we're to respond to evil personally. We're now talking about how government responds to it. Government's established by God. It's a cause of fear for evil. It's a bearer of the sword. Government exists to punish evil, to protect you from a thief, to protect you from a murderer. 
And theologians would say it stands to reason that part of the reason or part of the punishing of evil is also to resist external threats and invasion, any harm to citizens that it is duty-bound to protect. In fact, we often look at police forces for this, you know, in our cities. But, you know, historically and even in many countries today, the army is the police force. We have a very unusual situation in modernity and in Western society. In the ancient world, the army would do that kind of protecting in a country. The Bible covers thousands of years of history. There is no condemnation in the Bible of governments protecting their citizens. It's assumed and it is most basic defense of war. But here's where war gets more controversial. And theologians since Augustine, who I think was third century, so a couple hundred years after Jesus, war has been discussed and debated by Christians because the theology of war must encompass a just war ethic. Not all war is created equal. Motives matter. There are wars going on today which are basically plunders for profit at times or genocide and racism due to hate. We're watching one of those right now when Hamas invaded Israel. The, the true doctrine of Hamas is that no Jew should live. I believe they say what? From the river to the sea. Have you heard that phrase? From the river to the sea. In fact, an American congresswoman said this who has been condemned by Congress, thankfully. She quoted that, from a river to the sea. What it means is, no Jew should be alive from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. It is a call for mass genocide of all Jews today. Not all wars are created equal. Some are from greed or a plunder for profit. Some are because we need to protect people from aggression, and it's a protection of the innocent. And the Bible, again, seems to have no problem with nations defending themselves. But theologians have put together a useful list of criteria for just war. And I actually am quoting here Wayne Grudem, but there's a, I was reading, we actually have a young man at our church who put together a book about biblical masculinity, Paul Luponi, one of our elder sons. And he has the same list in his book, and it goes all the way back to Augustine. So Augustine was a theologian in, I believe, the 3rd or 4th century, and it's basically the same list. So Christians have debated this since soon after Jesus. And if you follow like international law and Western nations, they generally operate within these criteria. And that is what I'm going to show you right now. War should have a just cause. Is the reason for war morally right? Are you defending yourself? And as an American, I would say, shouldn't be over oil. A little critique of my own government. Competent authority is the war declared by the recognized national authority. Not sort of a murderous band of people starting a war, but is the war declared by the governing authority. There should be comparative justice. It should be clear that the actions of the one nation are morally wrong and the other morally right. Countries have to act with a conscience. There should be right intention. Is the intention to protect justice or to rob another nation and its resources? It should be the last resort. Have other means been exhausted? 
War should not be a surprise. War should be at the end of a massive amount of diplomacy. There should be a probability of success. Can the war be won or are we simply shedding lives made in the image of God? There should be a proportionality of results. Will the good resulting from victory outweigh the harm and loss of war? There should be a right spirit. There should be reluctance to go to war. We should never be excited about war. Further restrictions are being written on how to process or the how of war, the process of war. There should be a proportional use of force. When, when you see a Western nation responding to something going around the world, they usually talk about proportional responses. No greater destruction than necessary. Here's a big issue in international law. Discrimination between combatants and non-combatants. As much as is possible, we need to protect the innocent. Now that is becoming incredibly difficult in war today because terrorists don't wear uniforms. And so it's really, really difficult to conduct sort of honorable warfare today. There are, there are situations in war where, where people will use innocence as human shields. It's been going on for a long time. People don't wear uniforms anymore. It's harder to identify the enemy. In Vietnam, which I don't know, was Canada involved in Vietnam in any way? No, all right. In Vietnam, so it's American war, one of the problems was whether you had villages that were friendly to the Viet Cong, where even basically the whole village is participating in the war against the Americans. And so one of the great criticisms against soldiers is if they bombed villages with women and children because they were viewed as enemy non-combatants, or I should say as non-combatants. That was a very controversial thing in America. The nuclear issue is a part of this. When I look at this today and I look at the ethics of this, I'm not sure that it was moral for America to drop the bomb in World War II. In fact, it may have been immoral. And I'm saying that as an American, it was one, one of my greatest regrets is not serving in the military. And I've had a son in the military and a son-in-law in there now. But when you look at the non-combatant issue, I know why America did it. The reality is the public was losing its enthusiasm for World War II. Too many young men were dying. And the Japanese were taking an approach pretty much where they were told if you give up, you'll be tortured and so on. It wasn't true. But they were fighting to the death in, in ways that were wearing out sort of the American will to fight. And so they dropped the bomb to hasten the end. It probably was an immoral act based on the rules of war. Nations have to have a conscience when it comes to this. The avoidance of evil means... Do we torture prisoners? How do we treat them? Good faith, are we trying to restore peace and harmony with our attacker? That's a lot. But even if you believe in war, we have to conduct war with ethical bases. I just want to show or throw up four little apps here and then I want to read something to you. The Prince of Peace in a World at War. Always be sober about war. God's image is being killed in war. We should always be sober about the loss of life. We should, especially in democratic nations, hold leaders accountable for just war and the careful use of their own. You do not want leaders in your government or in your military who do not take very seriously what it looks like to send young men and women into harm's way. They should care about those lives. Pray for peace and look forward to the one who will bring it. We live in a world that will never be made right until Jesus returns. We should want peace wherever possible. 
and finally love those broken by war's efforts. And I want to end on that theme. The obituary of Floyd Thompson said that for nine years he endured cold cells, jungle cages, and torture. He was the longest serving prisoner of war, uh, actually from my country in the south there, in any conflict. He died July 16, 2002. He was age 69. The citation that accompanied his Distinguished Service Medal said that Jimmy Thompson had endured unfathomable deprivation and hardship in the service of his country. Perhaps the most arresting paragraph in the obituary was this. Dying is easy, an enemy camp commander told him. Living is the difficult thing. The obituary revealed how true that was in his case. He had been released from captivity after serving nine years and being tortured for nine years. He was released in 1973, and after he returned home, he experienced what a lot of people who have been in war experience. He was divorced twice. He battled alcohol and depression. And in 1981, he suffered a stroke that put him in a coma for six months, and he was paralyzed. War has very very damaging effects to those that participate in it. And I wrote, uh, I just wrote a tribute that I want to read for you regarding those who have been in war and those who have family members in war. And I'm just going to ask, would you just stand as, as I read this? And to those who left home and country to guarantee freedom for others, to those who set aside vocations and life dreams temporarily and permanently, to those who sacrificed everything based on the decisions of others, we thank you. To those who charged beaches and bunkers amidst enemy fire, to those who slept in frozen foxholes and wet jungles, to those who lost hope that they would live till the end of the war, we thank you. To those who took life and struggled to live with it, to those who held their friends as they breathed their last breaths, to those who left but never came back, we thank you. To those who returned but will never be the same, to those missing limbs, suffering with PTSD, with brain injuries, to the homeless, the addicted, the broken, and the forgotten, we thank you. To the families missing sons, fathers, husbands, daughters, mothers, wives. To the families supporting those who will never be the same. To the families who have lost and would do it again for freedom. We thank you. This has been a little different kind of service. and God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the freedom that has been bought by so many so that we can live in countries where we can freely acknowledge you, where we can believe whatever we want to believe, where we can follow you with very little restriction. And even though the, the world isn't perfect, and even in the Western world we see some of those freedoms being eroded, we know that in general we live in the free part of the world and that we are truly blessed because of that. And we know that that is only possible because of battles that have taken place that we have no part in. Maybe our grandfathers did or great-grandfathers, but we haven't had a part in that.
and people gave their lives so that we can live in the world we live in today. We also know that there are other parts of the world where they don't have freedom, and people are giving their lives even today to try to restore freedom, to try to protect freedom. We know that there are countries where there are no freedom and there is no war, and those people suffer. We want a world full of peace. We want a world full of human dignity. We want a world where the image of God is respected by all. And we know that perhaps that world will only come when Jesus returns. But in the meantime, we pray that you would give us a world of peace, that you would give us a world where government respects its citizens, that you would give us a world where, where nations can live in harmony with each other. For everyone serving today in a battlefield, for the people suffering around the world in the midst of a couple of wars we are very aware of, we pray. We pray for peace. We pray that you would comfort the afflicted, that you would give leaders the kind of wisdom to look for peace. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.